Welcome to Riverstone. I'm John. I'm one of the pastors. Let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Father, as we come together to study your word this morning, please help us. Help us by your spirit to understand what you've caused to be written for our instruction so that we might believe what it teaches and trust what it promises and obey what it commands. In Jesus' name, amen. We uh, just recently started a series uh, called Clarifying Jesus Committing to the Journey in the book of Mark. And so we're in uh, just the very beginning of the book of Mark, uh, the gospel of Mark, this, this account of the, the life and work of Jesus. And in the, the first half of the gospel of Mark, chapters 1 to 8, the big topic, the big question is, who is Jesus? Who is this? Right? You see this question asked over and over again in the first several chapters of the book. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? Who is this who has authority? And so the first eight chapters are establishing who Jesus is and the authority that he has. And then the, the next eight chapters start asking, well, if this is who Jesus is, then what's he come to do and what does it have to do with me? So we saw Jesus uh, in, in chapter 1. Jesus comes onto the scene. He gets baptized. He gets, go, uh, goes out into the wilderness and is tempted, comes back, starts preaching. And he calls disciples and he goes about preaching and he's healing diseases and he's preaching in the synagogues. And the people, when they hear him preaching in the synagogue, say, we've never heard anyone like this. They're amazed that he teaches with authority, unlike the, the scribes that are normally teaching in the synagogue. And he's and he's healing people. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He cleanses a leper, which is remarkable. And so far in the story, people are just very intrigued with Jesus. They don't know who this guy is, but he's doing amazing things. And they want to they know more about him. Who, who is this? As we move into chapter 2 today, the tone of the story shifts as Jesus begins to come into conflict with local religious leaders. And so if you want to turn to Mark 2, that's where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Our ushers would be happy to get you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible uh, or own a Bible, you're, willing to, uh, you're welcome to keep that one. It's our gift to you. Mark 2. See, Jesus in, in, in Mark 1 has been preaching, He's been healing, uh, He's been casting out demons, and, and as remarkable as these things are, they're not uh, necessarily offensive. They might be uncommon, but they're not offending anybody. They're just kind of amazing people at this point. Chapter 2, Jesus is going to peel back the veil a little bit on who he is and reveal things that will get him in trouble with the religious establishment. So in, in Mark 2, up to chapter 3, verse 6, you have five stories of Jesus interacting with religious leaders. Jesus doing things and the religious leaders reacting, and then Jesus telling them a little bit more about, about who he is. So this morning we're going to look at the first two of those stories. That's going to be Mark 2, 1 to 17. These two stories go together because they specifically have to do with uh, Jesus and his relationship to sin and sinners. Each of these stories has the same uh, basic pattern. Mark kind of sets the stage for the interaction. Jesus acts, 
He does something. The religious leaders react to what Jesus does, and then Jesus responds to them with the lesson that He intends to teach. And what we're going to learn from these stories this morning is something that's so absolutely fundamental, foundational to the Christian faith that it's not surprising that Mark would put it up front in his gospel. It's the truth that Jesus is able and willing to forgive your sins. It may seem kind of basic if you're a, a Christian. So yeah, that's Christianity 101. But remember where we are in the story. These people don't know anything about who Jesus is. Jesus shows up and, and says, I'm able and willing to forgive your sins. That's radical. Maybe it will be more radical for you this morning than you think. So let's look at Mark 2. The first story is verses 1 to 12, Jesus healing a paralytic. Verse 1, when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. So Jesus had been out preaching, uh, and he had come back to Capernaum right at the end of uh, uh, chapter 1. It says people were coming to him from all of these. Uh, he, was, he was out in the wilderness. People were coming to him from everywhere. So he goes back home after preaching, and it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even at the door. Word about Jesus had spread. Clearly, he was becoming somewhat of a local celebrity. He was speaking the word to them, so he was continuing to teach them. People gathering to his, his home, or perhaps Peter's home in Capernaum. His teaching there it was so crowded, you couldn't get in the door. And it says, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. So these four guys bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. Certainly they've heard that Jesus can heal. Right? This is one of the things that's amazing about what Jesus is doing. It's not common. He's healing people. And so they're like, if our, if our friend is paralyzed, we could take him to Jesus. Maybe Jesus can heal him. Now, they're desperate. They can't get in the front door to see Jesus. And so they're, they're sort of ingenious, and they climb up on top of the, the house, and they dig a hole in the roof, which is probably just kind of a thatched roof or uh, made, with, uh, made with twigs, or it's a mud roof. Either way, something you can dig through. So imagine Jesus is sitting there in the middle of the house teaching, and suddenly the roof starts to cave in, and a big opening opens up. It has to be big enough that they can, they can let a guy laying on a blanket down. And so they dig this big hole in the roof. If it's, if it's Peter's house, Peter's sitting there thinking, really? I had to get my roof replaced last year. If somebody had lowered somebody in through my roof and dug a hole in my roof, I probably would have been, been asking for some payment in return. These four men bring the paralytic to him. They're hoping that Jesus would heal him. They're, they're desperate to get him in front of Jesus, so they lower him down through the roof. Now, this is sort of where 
where our familiarity with the story can stop sometimes, right? A lot of people are familiar with this part of the story. Oh, look at the faith of these friends, how much they love their friend to get him in front of Jesus. And the reality is that, that we're, not even, we're not even to the, the beginning of the story. This is just the setting. Well, it's true that these guys love their friend, but something more happens. I want you to note that, that as the story has been going, the physical ailments that are coming to Jesus are getting worse. Peter's mother-in-law had a fever. Jesus healed her. Then there was a, a leper who came to him, and you know, lepers are unclean, and, and it's a very debilitating disease, and Jesus cleanses him. And now a paralytic comes to him, or rather is brought to him because he can't come himself. So that's the setting, and, and in verse 5, Jesus acts. Right, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, now, based on what we've read in chapter 1 already, in the times that Jesus is healed, we would expect that Jesus is going to heal the man. We would expect, based on where uh, this story has gone, and remember, the first time people are hearing this story, they're not getting to to go ahead and read, you know, read ahead the week between sermons. They're, they're hearing it. Right? We would expect Jesus to say, I'm willing, be healed, for the guy to get up and, and go home. And that would be a remarkable story. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. That's unexpected. Why does Jesus do this? Why forgiveness? Why this man now? A couple reasons, I think. One, the, the paralyzed man condition illustrates the severity of sin. Jesus is recognizing that sin is actually the biggest problem the paralyzed man has. It's not his paralysis, it's not his suffering, it's his sin. It's possible that Jesus chose to pronounce forgiveness for this man before healing in order to demonstrate how severe the problem of sin is. Right? There's, there's not many more debilitating conditions than paralysis, not being able to do anything. Even leprosy didn't go to this extent. The leper could still walk to Jesus and ask for cleansing. The paralyzed man couldn't even do that. He had to be carried. And if Jesus saw this man's condition and said that his biggest problem was not suffering but sin, then it shows just how terrible sin must be. It's the biggest problem he had, and it's the biggest problem we have as well. Sin is, is not just doing bad things. It's a condition in which we rebel and reject God and His ways in favor of our own. The biggest problem we have is sin. Ultimately, it's because it has eternal consequences. The paralysis for this man will end when he dies. His sin will have eternal consequences. Suffering in this life may be real and painful, but the reality is that it's temporary. The consequences of unforgiven sin are eternal. So his condition illustrates the severity of sin, but it also illustrates the nature of sin. 
Jesus may have chosen to make this declaration of forgiveness over this man, this paralyzed man, rather than Peter's mother-in-law or the leper or any of the other people that he healed, because this man's condition so aptly illustrates the nature of sin. Sin is like spiritual paralysis. It affects everything about us, just like there's no part of the paralytic's life that's not affected in some way by his paralysis. So, no part of our lives is unaffected by sin. And it leaves us totally powerless. Just like the paralytic had no ability to do anything to heal himself, so we too, in our spiritual paralysis, have no ability to do anything spiritually good to procure God's forgiveness by our works or religious efforts. And so Jesus meets this man in his complete, total inability to do anything to, to heal himself or to forgive his sins, and he meets it with his divine ability. Jesus does what neither the, the paralytic or anyone else can do. He forgives sins. There were other people uh, in, in the, the Jewish understanding who could heal. Healing was not something that was unique to Jesus. There were prophets in the Old Testament that healed, but Jesus does what nobody else can do. Jesus not only heals, but he also forgives sin. And the scribes react to this. Look at verse 6. Some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They think Jesus is blaspheming. He's, he's speaking with irreverence or contempt for God because only God can forgive sins. And so for Jesus to forgive sins or to claim to be able to forgive sins is to claim authority that belongs only to God. Thus, it's for Him to claim to be God. You see, they're, they're, they're half right and half wrong in their evaluation of the situation. Their theology is, is correct. Only God can forgive sins. No one else can forgive sins, only God. Where they're wrong is their evaluation of Jesus. They say, this guy can't forgive sins, only God can forgive sins. But Jesus says, no, I can forgive sins, which, by the way, is a, is a claim to deity. Don't let anybody ever tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. He claims it here. So the scribes, they're reasoning in their hearts, so they're thinking this inside themselves, saying, this guy is whack. He can't forgive sins. Who does he think he is? Jesus knows immediately what they're thinking. He doesn't have to read their faces to try to work out what they're thinking in their minds. Immediately he knows what they're thinking. This is how he responds. He's aware in his spirit they're reasoning that way within themselves and said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Uh, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Right? So he asks, he asks these religious leaders a question. First of all, he's like, I, I know what you guys are thinking. And he asks, which is easier for me to say? Not which is easier for me to do, but which is easier for me to say? 
The implied answer is, well, it's easier, Jesus, for you to say, just to say your sins are forgiven, because it's not something that can be objectively verified, right? So, I could walk around saying your sins are forgiven, but, but my word doesn't mean anything. But the harder thing to do would be to, to tell the man to get up and walk, because that's something that could be immediately verified, proven true or false. So Jesus says, you're upset because I'm just, I'm saying something. It would actually be harder in your minds for me to tell this person to get up and walk. And then verse 10, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Jesus heals this man to demonstrate, to prove to those religious leaders that he does have the authority to forgive sins. He says, you don't believe that I can do it? Watch this. The healing certainly is meant to alleviate this man's suffering as he's come to Jesus, but I think it's also meant to illustrate the nature of the forgiveness of sins. Just as the man's paralysis was an illustration of the nature and severity of sin, so the man's healing is an illustration of the nature and reality of forgiveness. Like this healing, forgiveness comes through the Word of Jesus. Jesus speaks and things happen. His Word is powerful. It doesn't simply describe reality. He's not simply saying, I'm aware that your sins have been forgiven. He is actually forgiving the person's sins. It creates a new reality. Just as He speaks and the man is healed, so He speaks and the man is forgiven. Like healing this forgiveness is immediate. Uh, this is not something that's reserved for the end of your life, after your good and bad deeds are weighed in the scales of divine justice. The forgiveness that Jesus pronounces is an immediate forgiveness. It happens right then. Jesus doesn't say to the man, your sins will be forgiven in the future. At the end, he says, your sins are forgiven right now. Your status before God is no longer guilty but forgiven. Just as your status to this paralyzed man, your status was paralyzed and now it's well, immediately. And like this healing, forgiveness is permanent. It's not a temporary fix until the next time the man sins. When Jesus pronounces a verdict, it's a permanent declaration. So Jesus is able to forgive sins. He has the authority to do it. But is He willing to? Ability does not necessarily imply willingness. 
Uh, simply because I can do something doesn't mean I will do it. My five-year-old this morning was running around the breakfast table saying, no one can tickle me, over and over again, which you know is code for, somebody please come tickle me. Daddy, you can't, you can't catch me, you can't tickle me, to which I want to respond, oh, yeah, I can, I just don't want to. until we've done it three or four times, and then I really can't anymore because I get winded. Simply because I can do something doesn't mean that I, that I will do it. Jesus having the ability and the authority to forgive sins is one thing, but it's another question about His willingness to forgive sins and whose sins He's willing to forgive, and that's what the next story outlines in verses 13 to 17. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. So he's going back out to to preach and to teach. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Jesus has called some disciples already in chapter 1. Now he calls somebody not just who is unexpected, it was unexpected for Jesus to call fishermen to be his disciples. Now he does something that's scandalous. He calls a tax collector to follow him and be one of his disciples. Tax collectors, if you remember at the time, were were often Jewish people who had chosen to work for the the Roman government or the, the, the puppet governments that the Romans had set up to collect taxes, but the government didn't care how much they collected as long as they got what they were supposed to get. So the tax collectors often collected far more than they were supposed to, and they were doing it to their fellow countrymen. So they were regarded as traitors. And Jesus walks by Levi, sitting at the tax booth, and says, follow me. And he does. And then verse 15, and it happened that he was reclining at the table. That means they're having dinner in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. So now it's not just tax collectors, it's also sinners. These are people, certainly we say, well, everybody's a sinner. Yes, but in, in, in this uh, time, the people who were thought of kind of publicly as sinners are those who are irreligious and immoral, and everybody, everybody knows about it. They're sinners as opposed to the Pharisees who, who fancied themselves as being the righteous people, the people who obeyed the law of Moses. So Jesus is having dinner with these outcasts, these people who, who were uh, far from God, people who had betrayed their own people. This is scandalous. And Jesus calls them to follow Him and to have fellowship with Him. He's eating with them. That's a sign of great friendship, to share a meal with somebody. But I want you to note what condition they are in when He calls them. They're still sinners. They haven't changed themselves. They they haven't cleaned themselves up 
to make themselves presentable to Jesus so that they can go and eat with Him. They're still sinners. Well, the scribes see this and they don't like it. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that He was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to His disciples, why is He eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? They're incensed. They're offended. Jesus is a rabbi. He should not be associating with these people. He should be associating with the people who are righteous, with people who think that they're righteous, especially religious people like themselves. Again, the, the Pharisees, the, the scribes, they're half right and half wrong. Uh, the people who are eating with Jesus indeed are sinners. They're, they're right in a sense that, that, that these people are sinners, but they're wrong in their evaluation of themselves. Like, why is Jesus eating with them? The implication is He should be eating with us because we're not sinners. But they're wrong because they are. They just don't see it. Verse 17, Jesus responds to their reaction. With an illustration, he says, Hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. The difference between the tax collectors and, uh, and sinners and the, and the scribes is that they realize that they need to be forgiven. And they respond to Jesus' free and gracious call to be forgiven and, and follow Him. They realize they're sick and they need a doctor. And Jesus explains Himself. He says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus did not come for righteous people. That is self-righteous people. This is probably a little bit of a dig at the scribes. They think they're righteous in themselves and have no need of a Savior. Jesus did not come to call people who think that they're fine on their own. But He did come for sinners. Not after they cleaned themselves up and made themselves more presentable. Not after they had proved that they were sufficiently sorry for their sins and performed acts of contrition. It'd be like telling a person to get better before you go see the doctor. He came for sinners as sinners. Think of the, the text in Isaiah 55 that we read this morning. Oh, you who are thirsty, come and drink. Come and buy without money. How do you buy without money? Because it's a gift. You don't have to get money before you come to Jesus for salvation to buy His forgiveness. Like the healing of the paralytic demonstrated Jesus' ability to forgive sins, so this story illustrates Jesus' willingness to forgive sinners who are still in their sins, apart from any work that they've done, any merit that they have earned, but totally as a gift of grace. Jesus is able to forgive your sins. He has the authority. Jesus is willing to forgive sinners. 
Not righteous people, not religious people, sinners. Are you a sinner? Jesus is willing to forgive you. Think of the song that we just sang. There's a reason I picked the song, and it wasn't just to see whether or not you would like it. <laughs> Let not conscience make you linger, or of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness He requires is to feel your need of Him. Jesus is able to forgive your sins, and He's willing to forgive sinners. So the question is, has Jesus forgiven your sins? If you're a follower of Jesus and you're trusting Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, there's some things to to remember from this passage. Remember, Jesus' forgiveness of you was immediate. It's not just a future promise. It's a present promise reality. You don't have to wait in suspense to see if you're going to measure up in the end. Your acceptance with God is not something that happens on some future day and you are unsure of the verdict. If Jesus has forgiven your sins, that forgiveness was immediate. You have forgiveness right now. Remember, Jesus' forgiveness of you was permanent. It's not a temporary solution. It's a permanent reality. So you don't need to return again and again to God saying, please forgive me. I'll try to do better next time. Give me a second chance. Please stop saying that God gives you a second chance. That's not true. God gives you a righteousness that's not yours, it's Christ's, and so you don't have a second chance, you have a second life. It's a permanent forgiveness. Now certainly we should confess our sins to God, but it's not so that we can be forgiven again, but so that we can again enjoy the forgiveness that we've already received. Remember in Psalm 51, David confesses his sin to God, but he does not say, restore to me your salvation but restore to me the joy of your salvation. Remember that that salvation, that forgiveness is permanent. Remember that Jesus' forgiveness of you was by grace and is still by grace. It's not grace at first and then works later, after you get your feet under you, right? Grace is not just a little pep talk that God gives you. Say, okay, I'll take care of the the sins from before. We'll get you set now, but now it's up to you. It's not grace for your past and obedience for your future. All of your salvation is by grace. It doesn't require you to pay God back as if His forgiveness was a loan. It's a gift from first to last. And so while you may struggle in your walk with Jesus, and there are days where you, where you doubt and you wonder about how closely you're, you're walking with Him, you must start by preaching the gospel to yourself that your forgiveness is not dependent on how good your quiet time was or how much you prayed. Because as soon as your forgiveness becomes dependent on something that you're doing, you're lost. If your forgiveness is entirely dependent on what Christ has done, then you're secure. 
Remember, Jesus' forgiveness of you is based on His Word, not your feelings. When Jesus pronounced forgiveness on the paralyzed man, He was really totally forgiven, and it really didn't matter what the paralyzed man thought or felt about himself at that point. He trusted Jesus, and Jesus said, His sins are forgiven. Some of you, I I know, say you're not sure if Jesus has forgiven you because you don't feel forgiven. But your feeling about that matter is actually not all that important. What matters is not what you feel, but what's reality. It's not what you say, it's what Jesus says. If Jesus says your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. Remember that Jesus' forgiveness also results in you following Him, right? This is what happened with the the tax collectors and the sinners. They were forgiven by Jesus, not after they changed, but as they were. But then they heeded Jesus' call to discipleship and followed Him. And you better believe they changed afterwards. If you're forgiven by Jesus, you follow Him. That's how it works. And for you to say, oh, I'm, I'm forgiven, yeah. I, I have forgiveness. I, I said the prayer. I'm in with Jesus. Um, but I don't really care too much about actually following Him and taking this whole Christianity thing seriously. It's like saying, I'm alive, I just don't breathe. It doesn't work that way. So some of you need to get serious about following Jesus. It doesn't save you, but it sure shows that you're being changed by the one who's forgiven you. If you're not a believer this morning, if, you, if you're not trusting in Jesus for your salvation, and I know there are some of you here, then this text has a, a special and direct application to you. Remember, the biggest problem in your life isn't suffering, it's sin. The biggest problem in your life, it's not the things you can see. It's your standing with God. And if you are not trusting Jesus, then your standing with God is guilty and under condemnation. But remember... Jesus is able to forgive your sins right now. Don't think that you need to make up for something lacking in Jesus' ability to forgive you. Everything He did was sufficient. Don't think anyone else can play a part in your forgiveness, including yourself. Don't think you have to wait to see if Jesus will accept you. Sometimes we think about coming to Jesus as if we're applying to college. We have to wait to hear back after we've applied whether or not we, we got in. There's an immediacy, the promise. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's a promise of the Word of God. Remember that Jesus is willing to forgive you, you as a sinner, Not as somebody who's come to church enough that Jesus might like them now. You, as you are, as a sinner, you don't need to clean yourself up or become less sinful before Jesus will will take you. 
If you were paralyzed and I told you there was a doctor who offered you a permanent, immediate, free cure that you could have right now, a cure that had been tried over and over again with millions and millions of people over thousands of years who have affirmed its power and it's never failed, you would be absolutely foolish not to avail yourself of the remedy. You would not think that you somehow need to get healthier before you come and undergo the treatment. You would not not wonder what other people might think of you for, for coming to try the treatment. You wouldn't think you'd need to do more in order to be worthy of it. You'd simply do it because you know how desperate your situation is. Do you recognize that you're a sinner and that you need forgiveness? On the basis of the authority of the Word of God, Jesus offers Himself to you right now to be your Savior. You're exactly the kind of person Jesus came to save. Remember that Jesus' forgiveness is free, but it's not automatic. You need to cease trusting in yourself or others and place your trust entirely in Jesus. Like Levi, you need to heed Jesus' call and commit to follow Him. Don't think, I can't come to Jesus yet because I don't know how to follow Him. You're getting the order wrong. First come to Him, then learn to follow Him. It's always both, but it's always in that order. First forgiveness, then following. And so why wouldn't you place your trust in Jesus this morning to receive the forgiveness of your sins and commit to follow Him? Like the hymn we sang says, this is the offer and promise of the gospel. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, joined with power. He is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you honor and glory and thanks that to you has been given authority to forgive sins. You were slain and by your blood you've ransomed people for God. But thank you, Lord, that you you call not the righteous, not those who are, are good enough, but those who could never be good enough. Not those who are beautiful, but those whom you make beautiful by your work. Lord, I pray that you would use this word that people might come to Jesus freely, trust in him, receive his salvation, and follow him. We know your word is powerful, it divides soul and spirit, joint and marrow, it judges the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, it lays us bare before you, and so Lord, I pray that your word would do its work among us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.
Have a wonderful day.